Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director here at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, managing editor at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, who asked you anyway? Child, that should apply to a number of folks. Uh, but before mm-hmm. we get into the show and asking people, you know, who asked you anyway? Why are you opening your mouth? Why are you flapping your gums? What is on your mind this week, G? So everyone is talking about Dave Chappelle, the Closer Netflix special. And I didn't rush to watch it because I had other things to do. I'm a busy person. <laughs> um, but... Uh, actually, one of our colleagues, Courtney Wills, our entertainment director, she called me and she was like, did you watch it? I want to know your thoughts. Um, and obviously, being a part of the LGBTQ plus community, she wanted to know if I felt it was homophobic and transphobic, as many of the community have said. And I did watch it. And I have to say, um, I personally do not think that it was homophobic. Uh, I think that it was it was definitely on that line of transphobia. I don't think that Dave Chappelle's intent was to be homophobic or transphobic. And as a person who understands comedy, I understood most of the jokes. I think that I did laugh at certain parts, but there were parts that made me cringe as well. And one, I want to say that as a black queer person, I felt erased from the sketch, from the stand-up, because he focused so much on talking about the the LGBT the LGBTQ plus community um, through a lens of white supremacy, and it completely ignored the fact that there are many of us who are black and brown, a part of the community, who were just as incensed and just as hurt and impacted by words and actions of people like the baby or or Boosie or whoever we're talking about from week to week when these homophobic, transphobic uh, comments are said. So I think it's important to separate a Dave Chappelle from the baby. I don't think, I think that there was some type of artful attempt to bring the community in the conversation, like he talks about black people and white people and women and Asian people. Uh, and and there there is room for that in comedy. I think that where Dave Chappelle went wrong is that he didn't acknowledge people like me. He just kind of dismissed like, oh, you're complaining about Kevin Hart and, and uh, the baby because you're white and you're speaking from your place of privilege. Well, what about those of us who don't have that privilege? Um, so I would have, I, I felt very ignored um, by that. And Preston Mitchum wrote a piece for the Grio uh, on behalf of the Trevor Project about this, and you know he saw it as something that is punching down to the community, even though you know he meant, he he makes that punching down, punching up reference in the special, and his take, in which I do agree with, also, which is that. While jokes are, are jokes to people like us who have the intellectual capacity to understand it's a joke, many people in our community and many people around in this country will not take it as such. They'll just see that as 
more fodder to make fun of trans people in particular. When, when I hear jokes about trans people, I'm more sensitive because, you know, I can take a gay joke. Like, I have friends who, who make anal sex jokes, you know, with me, and we laugh about it. It's not, like, I, I know it's not coming from a homophobic place. But because of where the trans community is today and how harmful it is for them to just simply walk the streets. I mean, I know it's, it's dangerous for me to walk the streets as a gay man, but I could not imagine being an openly trans person and have to endure the potential violence and ridicule every single day. And there are young people who are trying to figure out their identity, um, who are, you know, those jokes are being used in, in classrooms. And... Young people are having suicidal ideations at very young ages because of said jokes, whether it's coming from Dave Chappelle or someone in your, in your neighborhood or someone in your classroom. So there's danger to jokes, even though we know or I believe that Dave Chappelle is simply trying to use humor to provide cultural critique. Um, but he missed, he kind of dropped the ball when it came to having that understanding of the, the nuances of the LGBTQ plus community, because we're not all white and we're not all, you know, incensed because of our white privilege, because some of us are actually black and brown, just like you. Um, I think it, that's, it's so interesting. So I have not seen the special yet. I, I, I will watch it this weekend. I've been kind of waiting until all of the commentary dies down and we'll talk about cultural commentary and why that's a problem later. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I said, let me just wait until a lot of this dies down. But something that I think that is very interesting is the fact that, um, again, I haven't seen it, but I've seen little thoughts and bit pieces here. Uh, the fact that he apparently at one point in the standup says that he himself is a turf. I don't know if it was, you know, made in a joking manner or whatever, but let's recognize that turf is an acronym for trans exclusionary radical feminist. These are people who do not believe that trans women are women who do not believe that trans men are men. They're therefore by definition, he's admitting to being transphobic, but okay. You know, all right, fine. Let's, Comedy. Ugh, let's have a good time. Whatever. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm interested in seeing, uh, you know, exactly what he discussed and then just kind of making my judgments from there. Courtney called me as well. So <laughs> I am due for a very long conversation. Uh, but so, you know, again, talking to or rather kind of pivoting to people who, who asked you anyway and why do you feel the need to comment on things that are not incredibly necessary. Uh, so unless you've been living under a rock, uh, or, you know, really are not into sports, um, the big T this week has been John Gruden's, uh, John Gruden's, um, you know, emails coming to light, uh, as part of a larger investigation by the NFL. And I believe the, the Washington state team, the former Redskins, essentially, <clears throat> He was catching some heat about a comment that he had made, apparently, um, about a, a, a another person in the organization, a black man, uh, with some lines that basically said, um, comparing this black man's lips to Michelin tires. Now, okay, fun, right? Uh, you know, of course, there's minstrel character references there and for a white man to say that about a black man is already kind of iffy. Uh, but John Gruden then came out and said, 
which just when you in the grand scheme of things, when you pull back and watch the forest for the trees, makes it even worse. He came out and said, like, yeah, he took it too far, but he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Lies. Uh, but really <laughs> lies. Uh, but really, I think my big issue was watching so many black, especially black male sports journalists, sports analysts come out to defend this moron before the, you know, additional uh, info about his emails and just how incredibly homophobic that he was, how offensive he was to black people in general, um, out here sharing nudes of the cheerleaders on the team, like all of this from a work email, by the way, fun. Uh, but, you know, in particular, just seeing people like, uh, what is his name? Mike Tirico, um and... Oh gosh, I wish I could remember his name. It'll come to me. Um, but watching these black men again carrying water for a white man accused of racism, the whole idea of, oh, well, he's never been racist to me. You sounded like Terry Crews right now, but okay. He's never been racist to me. And, you know, I'm just going to take him for his word and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've never, you know, he's, he's been around black players and he's had this exceptional relationship with black players. Ask Keyshawn Johnson, because that's not true. But also, you know, all of, all of these things, all of these, these twists and turns and pretzels that they pull themselves into to defend some racist white man who, if you peel back all the layers at the end of the day, that man wouldn't spit on you if you was on fire. If you were to bring your black tail to his household with his white daughter, he would try, he would sit there and try to shoot you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like what, what do y'all gain from this? Is this again, just another example of black men trying to, you know, have proximity to power to sit here and, and, and be Samuel Jackson in Django and just no, and throw yourself in front of this white man for what that? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I am never, ever, ever going to defend any white man because I don't know what that man been talking about. This, it's very cute. What you can say amongst mixed company, but I I'm very interested to know what exactly do you talk about when you're with your friends when you think when you're with your white friends when you think nobody else is around to hear you mm -hmm. when you think nobody's watching your emails when you think nobody is is doing any of those things um, but it's just. It's really disappointing. It's really stupid. Um, it's giving Candace Owens. It's it's <laughs> it's it's giving Ben. You know, it's giving Ben Carson. It's giving a lot of those. And I'm I'm just not here for seeing black people twist and turn themselves to be the good black friend to protect any white person from their misdeeds, uh, their racist misdeeds. But okay. yeah, that's just my little two cents. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> so let's get into today's show. I mean, we are out here talking about cultural commentary and hot takes, right? Or mm -hmm. as I like to call them, you know, your think pieces, which I, I call stink pieces. Uh, <laughs> the art of the hot take is one we have all become familiar with. These are quickly produced, often strongly worded pieces of commentary that are in direct response to a recent event. When hot takes are really hot, they catch fire, often going viral. At a time where one tweet can go around the world within minutes, 
The hot take has truly changed the culture of cultural commentary. This week, we're joined by writer, music journalist, and cultural critic Saray, and we'll talk with him about his experience as a verified commentator on the culture and get his thoughts on how social media is changing cultural criticism. Let's get into it. So, Shauna, as you know, you work in social media, we work in media at large, and we know a good hot take when we see it. We know clickbait when we see it. So I want to first start the conversation by distinguishing what is the difference between a hot take and clickbait? I I mean, I think first off, (laughs) it really comes down to the... okay, Okay, so... Let's distinguish what a hot take is and what clickbait is, right? So hot take is usually, um, it's, it's typically derived from facts. Um, uh, <laughs> more, more times than not, it there. is someone, you know, it's, it's, it's derived from facts. Um, it's something that is, uh, meant to be thought provoking and interesting. Um, especially from like op-ed pieces. Those are, those are your hot takes, right? So case in point, I had a hot take when, uh, the, co- the contract for Black America came out from Ice Cube and I I thought he was full of poop. And, you know, and I said, (laughs) I gave my reasoning as to why and I explained it. Um, And then I had many people, typically hoteps and and people who don't, you know, know punctuation in words, um, were (laughs) essentially like, oh, you know, with you and this clickbait, first off, I didn't tell you to click nothing. You don't have to click nothing. The Like, my opinion is right there in the headline. If you don't agree, or if you want to know why I said it, then feel free to click. But that's not clickbaity. Clickbait is something where I'm like, oh, well, you know, Ice Cube and this contract for Black America has Russian funding. I don't freaking know that. You know, like, <laughs> like, and, and those are, those are, it's, it's, it's the shade room gossip. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what your clickbait is. Um, I think the thing about it is, though, where I get frustrated in this world of social media and this world of everybody believes that just because you have a keyboard and just because you have a screen and, you know, maybe maybe you have a few followers here and there that your hot take actually matters. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a, a problem within our society. Um, I, and I say this as a person who writes op-eds. Y'all don't have to give a, a single hot biscuit of a damn about what I have to say. That's fine. And I can still put that out there. But I at least feel as though, at, and especially on certain topics, I don't speak on things that I don't know about. As a black woman, as a as a woman who was out here voting, as a woman who was out here voting as a Democrat, who has been, you know, trying to push all of these things, I felt that my commentary at that point in time as to how dangerous I felt that his actions were at that point in time were important and were something to add into the ethos and at least be able to get that out and get my frustration out. Um, mm. But I mean, uh, to keep it a buck, like not everything requires everyone's commentary. It's it's sometimes it's not okay. cultural commentary. Sometimes it's just just shut up and keep scrolling. <laughs> but what do you think, G? Okay. Uh, so. So when it comes to clickbait, you know, for me, I would say if I had to define what clickbait is, it's when you uh, present something and then when I click it, there's no actual follow through. Like I didn't like you, you didn't the, the promise wasn't made or wasn't kept rather. 
So if you have a headline and I click it and I realize that, you know, you kind of like exaggerated the headline, um, that can be clickbait. Uh, but ultimately, clickbait doesn't have substance. You know, I do think of, you know, no shade to the shade room, no pun intended. Uh, but when you scroll through their timeline and you will see a lot of clickbait. They start, they have good content too every now and then. But oftentimes, shout out to it's them like, for their investigative pieces. Shout out to them. Yeah, shout, that was it's a really good investigative uh, series that they launched. I do like. I like the variety, um, and you you do need variety because I, I understand that there's a business model that has been created through clickbait because of the internet. You know, it's all about clicks. It's all about advertising dollars, and so that has kind of forced media companies or what what some may be seen as traditional media companies having to engage in what might be considered clickbait. And so as a news organization here at the Grio, uh, I can speak for us, is that while, yes, there might be a headline that might try to entice you, but we're trying to give you substance when you click through, that we're giving you uh, information that is valuable, that we have done research, that we are providing cultural and historical context. That's what makes a hot take. And I think that so much of that gets lost nowadays because one people don't read like you know shauna you know more we know more than anybody that you can construct and report the most amazing stories with the most amazing with the, with like factual interesting information good stories at the grill.com but people don't click they see a headline they keep scrolling and so that forces a lot of companies and brands to to kind of pedal in clickbait because you have to bait them like fish because y'all just swimming around Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and y'all don't really want to read. Y'all just want to, y'all just want to shout at each other. Everybody wants to have an opinion, but nobody wants to actually read and learn, which is what the media is for, which is what journalism is for. And so I find it very frustrating because I feel like what got me into journalism was the hot takes. You know, I grew up reading uh, Vibe magazine and Ebony and Jet and being like, I want to be, I want to see my byline in these magazines. And I did get my name in those magazines, actually. But now the industry has changed so much to the point where you you can't not exist in this, this like, in the in the middle of a hot take and clickbait. And so, and, and those lines are being blurred more and more every day when we have you know, I hate to quote uh, the former uh, impeached, twice impeached president, but fake news. We have this proliferation of fake news and and people spreading clickbait or spreading false memes, whether it's about uh, the pandemic and vaccines or uh, or information around uh, uh, the 2020 election. Like now, it's hard to decipher what is what, and people just. You know, it, it people just it's really hard to reach people with hot takes and, 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 and find an audience that really wants true and accurate information. Uh, so it's very interesting working in uh, this business because it's not it's not it's not the business that I grew up, you know, <laughs> watching and admiring is very, very different. Yeah. Listen, no reading comprehension, just vibes. 
<laughs> and with that said, I'm very excited that our featured guest today is none other than Torre because he's an expert on cultural criticism and he's been he's been doing this for a very long time. Torre is a writer, a music journalist, and cultural critic who has been at the forefront of cultural criticism. Torre, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Dear Culture. Thank you. I feel all blown up and put on the spot. You call me an expert in all these things? <laughs> the pressure is on. Oh, my God. You are. You are. You're so sweet. Thank you. Say, it's kind of a big deal. Oh, my me. God. Here you go. What's, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> so, first, because you are a cultural critic, many people these days, everyone has an opinion, especially with social media. What makes a cultural critic? What are the qualifications, you would say? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, a cultural critic is somebody, hopefully, who has, I mean, traditionally, you had some sort of institution, for starters. You're at the New Yorker or Rolling Stone or Time magazine, so readers would know to find you there, and some sort of import would be uh, transmitted to you because you are writing from the pages of the New Yorker or what have you. Now, I mean... You know, there's definitely people who do it um, in a YouTube newsletter. We don't blog anymore, but like newsletter sense. And because their opinion seems to matter to people, they get that same sense of uh, importance. But hopefully the critic will talk about culture in a serious way. We'll talk about culture in a way that reflects a broad appreciation and understanding for it. The easiest thing in the world is to say if something is good or bad. That is super boring and lame. What is it is much harder. Where does it fit within the continuum of things that are like it? Where does it fit in the world? Um, you know, we're having a national argument right now about Dave Chappelle's last stand-up. The political conversation is is he transphobic is he homophobic i'm falling asleep already the conversation about is this a good hour of stand-up where does this fit into the Chappelle pantheon of hours of stand-up where does this fit into the modern pantheon the historic pantheon how do you compare this and understand this versus what other people are doing with the forum have done in the past this, you know, an understanding of storytelling and callbacks and what he's trying to do with the form makes for a much more interesting cultural, critical conversation. Where does this fit within the modern landscape? You know, I've seen some comics and they'll do an hour and it's based on their own personal experience or it's based on some sort of imagined experience that has nothing to do with the real world. If nothing else, Chappelle has entered like a real world conversation. A lot of us are saying, you know, what does it mean to be trans? What does it mean to be white and trans? What does it mean to be gay and white? How does that interact with my world? I think uh, for a long, t a long time ago, a lot of us said, you know, what does it mean to be gay? Okay, you know, I accept that, you know, I have gay people in my family or my world. I, I you know, I accept that. I, you know, the, you know, live your life. You know, I think the last decade, a lot of people have been saying, hmm, what does it mean to be trans? You know, and this is a new thing that I have to embrace. Dave is at a certain place in his intellectual understanding of what that means. 
and he's wrestling with it on stage. Um, so, in a way, like this special exists in the real world, and the cultural critic would sort of note that and be able to say, you know, like here's other ways that trans uh, nest or the discussion about being trans enters into the world that Dave is perhaps responding to. All this stuff, talking about this special, or, you know, you could apply it to a movie or an album without ever saying, is it good or bad? Um, I, I just, I just, we just went to see the new James Bond film. Um, and, you know, it struck, it's it, it stood out to me that, I don't know if you guys have seen it, this does not ruin it for anybody. There's, there's another, he's left the force officially, right? He come, he officially comes back into it in the movie, but officially he's left the force. They replaced him with a dark-skinned black woman who is now 007, right? Like, he was always 007. And there's an interesting subtext of, like, oh, snap, now we have a black woman, you know, who's 007. This is cool. So, you know, and, like, you know, the cultural critic might talk about that and the meaning of that and how Bond has always been a straight white man and how many of us have been saying, hey, like, why can't it be Idris Elba? Why can't it be Lupita Nyong'o? Why can't it be Lupita Nyong'o, right? You know, I mean, like, you know, we can name others. Why couldn't it be Kerry Washington? Like, you know, and, um, you know, so just, like I'm saying, the cultural critic is going to do much more. You know, I hate when reviews meander down to here's a letter, here's a number, or even worse, here's a thumbs up or down, you know, like, Talk about what it is. So I guess my question to you, Saray, would be as a person who is a social media director, and I see a lot of opinions, a lot of critiques from self-appointed critics. uh, (laughs) What do you think qualifies someone to be a cultural critic? Or is it, you know, just anybody with an opinion? Any your aunts and uncles on Facebook? Who 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 qualifies as a cultural critic? Well, I mean You know, it's a great question. In terms of qualification, I would want to see somebody who deeply cares about the body of work that they are critiquing, who has an understanding of the history of it. So if you're critiquing, you know, hip hop, not only can you talk about, you know, the hot 10 records that are out right now this year, but you can also talk about what was going on in the double O's in the nineties, in the eighties. You can also talk about, you know, the pre eighties hip hip rap music. You can also, you know, perhaps even go back to what was coming out of Jamaica. Perhaps you can talk about some of the political reasons why hip hop developed. So you have a deeper understanding of hip hop. Um, You know, you have a understanding of the history of it. If you're into movies, you want to review movies can you talk about more than, you know, your favorite MCU movies, but like, you know, a, a history of movies and an understanding of what Scorsese is doing and what Julie Dash did and, you know, black exploitation and, you know, the rise of Spielberg and, and all sorts of things and not just sort of like one narrow thing. Because if you have a broad understanding and a deep concern, I cared very deeply about hip hop and hip hop culture. If you, like Pauline Kael had a famous book called The Greatest Movie Critic Ever. She had a famous book. I lost it at the movies. She cared deeply about the movies. Um, 
and that informed her critique. You know, when I, I, I got a lot of attention at one, once for, I think it was Public Enemy's sixth album that I bricked it, but it was partly from a deep love of Public Enemy and a deep love of hip hop that I was hurt and upset that they had made such a bad album. Um, now, the other thing, you know, so if I didn't love hip hop, then I would not have written what I did and it would not have come across to the audience in the way that it did. Now, you know, one thing that the cultural critic has to have is a sense of courage in that you're going to say something is bad when it's bad. When I said that Public Enemy record was bad, um, you know, a lot of people were very upset. People came to me on the street. People came to me in conferences and like at sort of meetings and like, how dare you say that about Public Enemy? And I was like, I had the courage. I mean, it's not the courage to like, you know, stand up to, you know, the system, but like I had the courage to say, I think this record is bad. And I think history has, uh, time has borne out that idea. Um, you know, if I was a movie critic, would I have the the courage to say, you know, Tarantino is the best uh, filmmaker working today, but his last three films have been horrible. So he hasn't made a good movie in about eight years. I think I would, you know, uh, but you have to have that sort of courage of your conviction to either say this thing, this person who everybody loves is not that good or this thing that you guys haven't noticed yet is great. Like when you can do that um, to elevate somebody or something that others have not yet noticed, that's really interesting and powerful. That to me is the most exciting part of it. Uh, you know, it's fun to break something that others are like, yeah, it's great. And you're like, no, it's not. Um, but when you when you elevate something that others haven't noticed to be the first or one of the first to say this group this artist this this person this entity who y'all have not noticed is amazing you should pay attention to that that is really empowering and powerful tori you mentioned something about having courage and obviously you've been doing this for years, so it probably doesn't really impact you. But I know when I started in, in writing before journalism, I was more, I was kind of a critic myself on the college campus of Morehouse. And I remember getting pushback for my critiques. How do you handle uh, people critiquing your critique? Have you developed, is there a way of developing tough skin uh, or do you just put it out there and don't care? I mean, you know, I wouldn't not care because I think the critic is in conversation with the audience. And if the critic totally doesn't care about the audience, then there will be a breakdown in their relationship, right? So, you know, you, you have a privileged position in that you get to listen to the album or see the movie a little bit before everybody and give your opinion and others will be at look, looking and checking what's your opinion. So you have to respect that position and care about the audience as well as you care about, you know, the, the, the form that you're critiquing. It's not that I don't care. It's that I care a lot and that I carefully listened to 
or carefully watched this movie or listened to this album or read this book. And I feel very deeply that, you know, this is a success or it's not or what have you. And, you know, I make that point. And, like, I have to stand on my sense of my correctness. I may have one or two or three um, elders who I look to, whose opinions I value highly, um, who may be insiders in a given world. I'm not jumping out the window, right? Somebody else whose opinion I really respect agrees with me. So now if, you know, if 10 or 100 of you say, like, we're mad about your opinion, like, well, you know, I, I, I triple checked my opinion. I asked my my mentor, my favorite elder, um, you know, I mean, you know, for me in my age, it may, you know, for me in my age, it may not be even an elder. If I was still talking about hip hop music, I would definitely have a millennial or even a Zoomer, an older Zoomer friend who was like, how do you, you like, what do you feel about this? Because I don't need, I don't need other Xers or Boomers to tell me how they feel about it. I make sure the younger folks are like, you know, we, 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 this is this is whack, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. Okay, okay, good. But I mean, like, the courage extends in many directions. If you brick a certain project, the creator may read what you wrote, and they may be hurt about it, and that may have repercussions for you professionally. Like, you may not get that interview. If when, you know, when it's there, when their, when their album comes out or whatever, you know, I can definitely think of one rapper who, um, I won't say their name, but I still today don't think, I think very little, very, very little of this person's ability. And I dissed them on Twitter and they, I was in a particular position and their people saw it. And as I was writing the thread, dissing them, somebody from my, my team called me and was like, stop typing <laughs> now. <laughs> and then it was like, so you are not going to get an interview with that person or you know, everybody's clicked up, right? So like, or the other people on their click because their management team is mad at you because you said da 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 and I'm like, wow, like. <laughs> now I want to know who this person is. I'm thinking. <laughs> well, tell us who it was, right? Uh <laughs> I mean, like the way things are now, like, you know, somebody could pull up something you wrote or said 10, 15 years ago and like, oh, 10 years ago, you said you ain't like me. So I'm not giving you an interview. Like, yeah. so, I mean, I definitely learned that Criticism, it's it sort of, I mean, it, it, I might as well say since the Grio, it's like, you know, like the Grios in Africa, right? Like they get buried separately because they have to be able to tell the stories, right? And like, if you're going to be a critic, like you just got to live that life and just, just roll on that lane. Because if you're going to be a critic and then jump back into like writing a feature back and forth, Eventually, your criticism, you're going to say negative things about somebody, and they're not going to like it, and then you're going to start cutting off your professional opportunities. And that's different than, 
you know, like a Wesley Morris who does this great cultural criticism where he's like, I'm going to talk about what's going on in society in general. And I'm not here to say, you know, this album is good, this album is bad, this movie is good or bad. But, like, I'm talking about, like, you know, what's going on in the world. I mean, like, that's the greatest thing or one of the greatest things in, in nonfiction writing is when you can give the audience a great idea such that they can take it and, like, go to a party. Remember when we used to have parties? Like, go to a party and go to somebody and say, you know, I, either express it as their own idea or say, I read Torre or Jaren or whoever, Jelani Cobb, whoever, said blah, blah, blah. And that helped me understand, you know, the black experience or George Floyd or Dave Chappelle or whatever it may be. And 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 it, you help them understand and enca- the world and encapsulate their feelings about the world into, you know, like a neat paragraph or a neat couple sentences. And and when you can do that, that's really powerful. And I think that makes the audience keep coming back to check for you. So, you know, in terms of cultural criticism, like it's not just, you know, here we are critiquing like certain bodies of work in terms of music or film. Sometimes it's critiquing like our culture at large. Uh, you've managed to make a, a decent living as a cultural critic on that aspect as well. Um, I mean, really, Teray, you were really at the forefront of R. Kelly and that whole debacle, of, you know, being able to ask him, like, wh- like, do you have a thing? Are you having relationships with teenage girls and the, you know, what do you qualify as teenage bit, right? Uh, so... I don't know. I think for me, just as a as a person who was a, a teenager, I think at the time who watched that interview and noticing that there wasn't really a, a, a large pushback back then versus now, how would you describe the value of a of a cultural critic and vote in cultural criticism, especially now? Well, okay. I, I mean, I think of cultural criticism as the person who is basically sitting in their apartment and writing about different strands of what's going on in the world and sort of like coalescing it into one thing, you know, and, and, or, you know, here's an album, here's a movie, whatever, here's a book, talk about what it is and what it means and what it does. That is different, I think, than what happened with R. Kelly. That was journalism, right? Like I'm out talking to, um, you know, a newsmaker, you know, one-on-one about like, what's up with you? Like you just got off trial. What's going on with you? Um, And, you know, it made news because I think he kind of gave away the game. Um, I I mean, there was no professional or institutional fallout partly because BET only aired that once the day after it aired R. Kelly's team called and said don't don't run that again and I don't know what their threat was but BET immediately said sure okay we won't run it again sorry um which is insane um but I mean I could barely walk down the street after that i mean you know not that people were mobbing me but like every block somebody would go yo your face your face is awesome. 
Uh, you know, we were all it confused. Was, I mean, it would take me an hour to get down two blocks because they were just everybody saw it and was commenting on it. And we did not use the word viral then, but it was super viral. Um, it was the beginning of a real pushback that would eventually end his career. But, you know, as you see, like, to get somebody actually canceled takes an extraordinary amount. You could still stream his music on Spotify and Tidal, right? His music will still pop up here and there in different situations, right? We saw a statistic that his music, uh, streams of his music went up 500% after he was... So, like, what does being canceled mean? Like, nothing. Um, he, he was convicted because the justice system got their stuff together and they're, we don't play that. And we actually pulled together, uh, I believe it was 11 people who were like, no, we can testify for real against him. It, it, it took a lot because the he still makes a lot of money for the music business. So they weren't going to do anything to push him off the stage. And speaking of cancel culture, you know, you basically said that it, it kind of doesn't exist, but we hear it so much. Do you think cancel culture is being overly used? Oftentimes when celebrities are being critiqued, they immediately go, they're trying to cancel me. How do we reconcile with what cancel culture is and how do we identify it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. So a couple of examples come up and let me, maybe we can go through them. I, I'm like, I don't know what cancel, what being canceled means. And to me, if you're canceled, there must be something, there's necessarily something final about it. It can't be temporary or it's not canceled. It can't be, um, you know, like, it can't, it has to be more than just, I'm angry with you. Now, there's been some discussion of like, Dave Chappelle is canceled. Dave Chappelle is the number three special on Netflix. There, you can see all all sorts of specials and his show on Netflix. You know, he just did a thing at the at the Hollywood Bowl. In no imaginable way is he canceled. Are some people very angry with him? Yes, I would move that almost no one who is a real Chappelle fan is angry about the closer. Right, that people have went into the closer having already decided I am angry with him because I feel like he's transphobic and/or homophobic, or I understand and I accept these are jokes and I'm riding with him. So nobody was actually moved, right? I think with with a cancellation, people are changed. Um, I think that you see like extraordinary situations like Russell Simmons, who once was able to move around America freely, was a very famous person and had a tremendous amount of power. And then like, you know, a ton of horrendous, tragic, horrific stories came out about him. And he stepped away from all his businesses and moved to Asia. That's canceled. He's, he cannot return to America. He cannot be a figure in America anymore. Um, now, in between there, I think about um, 
What's his name? Terry. Is it Terry Crews? Yeah, Terry Crews. I've been personally very offended by many things that he said. So when I see him in a show or on a TikTok or whatever, I turn the channel. I'm not riding with him. I'm not down with him. I, I'm good with him. I don't care his, for his tweets. I don't care to watch him on TV. I'm good with him. So he's, I've personally been like, I'm shutting off from you. There's nothing. And I listened to him talk to Roland Martin after the last straw, like trying to like understand and like give you a chance. And like, nah, bro, his explanation was terrible. You know, overall, it would be good if we could get to a place where people are able to grow like Terry Crews is like, this is how I feel. This is who I am. So I'm, and I'm like offended by that. If somebody makes like one wrong statement and we don't give them a chance to like, hey, here's some information, you know, on black people or trans people or whatever, you know, like, do you know, do you accept the information? Do you want to, you know, like the baby's in a lot of trouble. And as far as I understand, He's trying to be in dialogue with some gay groups who are trying to give him some information. This is a guy from rural North Carolina, right? Like he may or may not, you know, the information may or may not penetrate. I don't know. I'm not in his head. You know, do we want to give him a chance to receive the information and to develop more understanding and empathy? I mean, I know that information is a really powerful way of getting people to understanding and empathy. Um, I was at, I personally was at a certain, a, a certain given level in terms of my understanding of what it is to be trans. I don't think I was transphobic, but I really did not understand much about what that meant as just as a human condition. And if you tried to talk to me about trans children, I would have been like, I, I really don't understand anything about that. And then a friend of mine who I've known since we were both 20, um, you know, let me know that one of her, uh, five kids was trans. And I was like, Oh, wow. And we had a really long, amazing conversation where my friend, um, explained to me basically her son's coming out to her and you know, how, how, how he was fighting against wearing dresses before he could talk. And she was like, why is this such a struggle? And when he finally was able to talk, he's able to express like, I'm like daddy. And she's like, yeah, daddy's great. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. And, um, and also expressing suicidal ideation at like two or three. And I never forget her saying, like, when your child starts talking about suicide, you figure it out really fast. And that was very educational for me in terms of understanding how young a human being may can know what it is to be trans and, and, and what, that, what that journey might be like for them and their family you know, it gave me a different understanding and a different level of empathy for that human experience. You know, it, 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 thankfully, I didn't say something stupid about it before that. But like, 
you know, I would like to think that if I had, I could have had the chance to get some information and be educated and have folks go, okay, like he's, he's, he's done some work on himself and let's move forward and not just, you know, hold his feet, you know, and just always say like, oh, you're, you're a horrible person. You're canceled. So Teray, I got a last final question for you. Uh, before we let you, before we let you go, of course, we have to ask, what do you think is next for the culture? And I mean, quite frankly, what's next for you? Like you have a lot of things going on right now. Again, you're a big deal, Teray. So let us know. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. <laughs> what's next for the culture? I have no idea. I wish I knew. <laughs> I bet on it. I don't know what's next for the culture. You know, hopefully the culture will continue to surprise us because black culture in particular has been very aggressive about moving forward and growing. You don't really have that much in the way of black oldies stations, the way that white people do, because we're very forward looking as a culture. Well, Torre, I mean, you've been a phenomenal host. I really appreciate your candor, uh, your humor, um, obviously your expertise in helping us find the nuances uh, when it comes to cultural commentary. Uh, and for our listeners to hear more from Torre, visit his website at torre.com. His latest books, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? What It Means to Be Black Now, and I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon, are currently in stores. For more commentary on the culture, including from Torre, visit thegrio.com, and that's G-R-I-O dot com. And, and my other book about Prince, Nothing Compares to You, that just came out. Oh, another Prince book. Oh, excuse me. Big deal. What'd I say? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Torre. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Nice to see you. Good seeing you, too. We want to remind our listeners to support your local black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Black and Green. Black and Green is an all-natural, non-toxic online marketplace with a mission to connect black women to the tools, resources, knowledge, and products they need to lead happier and healthier lives. Founder and doctor of public health, Christian Green, believes that a life free of toxins and all things artificial is a life worth cultivating. Black and Green works to disrupt the personal care product market to support Black women in minimizing exposure to toxic chemicals in personal care. To learn more about Black and Green, visit their website, www.blkgrn.com. The Grill has published a list of 50-plus Black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those. To podcasts at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Talusma and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Enriquez-Payne, and Abdul Caduce.